Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is what we don't talk about when we talk about the economy. Voodoo! Economics! Force-fed! Hard to swallow! The cure is worse than the illness! This cure, worse than the illness! Our opening song is Voodoo Economics by Proletariat off of the 1982 compilation EP, Unsafe at Any Speed. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Sounds so good in theory. The poor must shoulder the burden. The view that capitalism is an inherently flawed, exploitative, crisis-prone, oppressive system is not new. But the dangers we face due to its operating procedures are increasing daily as corporations enjoy greater influence over governments and the endless pursuit of profits pushes our climate to the breaking point. Today we try to understand those operating procedures and why we ignore studying and critiquing capitalism as if it's a stoning offense, which indicates the near-religious fervor so many people display when defending the system. There is no alternative is screamed at us from the steps of the Capitol and shouted down at us from the high-rises on Wall Street. Excuse me, there are alternatives. There always have been. Our guest today is David Camfield. He's the author of We Can Do Better, Ideas for Changing Society, put out by Fernwood Publishing. Camfield is an associate professor in labor studies and sociology at the University of Manitoba. We begin with the simple fact that we have to contend with our organizing economic system being assumed as just the way life is, a natural fact of existence. It is the economy, stupid, but that means we should always talk about how it makes meaning in our lives and how it restricts our possible ways of living, even our ways of imagining a different life. And now, what we don't talk about when we talk about the economy, with David Canfield on Interchange on WFHB. The way that society is organized, not just in the U.S. and Canada, but globally, and so uh, for a lot of people, it just seems to be natural. It just seems to be the way things are, you know, and so if people don't have the experience of anything different, it can be easy to have it seem natural. Um, it's also the case that there's been, you know, concerted effort uh put in to convince people that, that this is the only way of organizing society. I mean, a lot of the time it's not even acknowledged as what it is. Right? It's mm-hmm. just people talk about the economy, for example. Right. Um, and so they're treating it like it's just a technical thing and not about way of people organizing their relationships to each other to produce goods and services, uh, you know, in a particular way, which is what capitalism is. Mm. Uh, and uh, so often seen as natural, uh, and the fact that it's a specific way of organizing society, which implies that there could be other ways, right, mm-hmm. this is uh, just frozen out, you know, not, not, in the, not up for discussion. Right. And then, yes, there's certainly been, uh, in the U.S., probably above all, uh, an effort to convince people that um, it's the best way, uh, it's the highest achievement of humanity, that it's human nature, uh, that anything else uh, would be to invite disaster and so on. Although it is very interesting that in the last decade, 
since the uh, beginning of the global slump or the Great Recession of 2008-2009. Since then, uh, opinion polls certainly show that more people in the U.S. are coming to uh, identify capitalism, whatever they understand by it, right, um, right. as a bad thing, and the popularity of socialism, whatever they might mean, understand by that, uh, is rising. Um, but it's, so it's interesting that as people's lives are getting harder, you do have that shift. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that makes it especially important to actually get clear about what capitalism is. It's been a long time since it's been as easy as it is now to talk about capitalism. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think it's important for us to start naming the system and to uh, explain how it works. And the book does try to clearly explain what uh, you know what the system is, although it's about a lot more than just capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, talking about the, the idea that capitalism is, as you say, kind of the pinnac- pinnacle of human achievement, right? It's part of the problem of talking about capitalism is that it can be pointed to as a great success in many ways. And you do this in your book. You, you point to the ways in which it has marshaled, you know, human productivity greater than any other force there's ever been. And, and that gives us the great things we think about today as being, you know, almost, uh, uh, we can't imagine our lives without the, the technological advances we have with capitalism. And, and that seems to me as big a problem as, as you know, people not having any understanding of what other ways there are. I think it's a good point. I mean, it's certainly, you know, whether it's the iPhone, which is, you know, remarkable because it's only, smartphones have only been with us for a decade or so, right? Um, but uh, whether it's that or, um, you know, all the internet. I mean, lots of other things we can talk about that people take for granted now that uh, you know have changed the way that we live. They're you know uh, really unimaginable for other for most people to think about a society that didn't have those features. But uh, we can delink those things from capitalism, right? There's there's no inherent reason why you can't have a society uh, with modern forms of communication that isn't capitalist. And just because capitalism created the conditions in which they were produced often with a lot of assistance from, from states um, in terms of research and development and, and so on, um, doesn't mean that we couldn't actually transform society and take the best of you know, human technological achievements and but also redesign technology in ways that actually makes it much better for people and, and of course, for, for nature. Mm, that sounds hopeful. Well, I think that there is reason for hope. I mean, uh, I think that we obviously are in a very difficult and dangerous period of history. Um, but I try in the book to make the point that there is the possibility of reorganizing society along different lines, that you know, the door is not firmly closed in our faces. Um, we obviously don't know the future, and I think it's really, it's not helpful for people um, who are anti-capitalists to insist that things will change, but rather to simply point out that there's the possibility that things could change, and that we have to work for that. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is what we don't talk about when we talk about the economy. And our guest is David Camfield, author of We Can Do Better, Ideas for Changing Society, a critique of social and economic explanations that evade the constitutive force of capitalism. So what's so bad about capitalism? In your book uh, throughout, you talk a little bit, or I guess it kind of, again, is something that you return to, a kind of metabolic relationship between humans, nature, and these forces of production. But uh, again, they give us these awesome things. So what's what's so terrible about it? You, You put your finger on it. There's a particular way that capitalism organizes our relationship to the rest of nature. You know, we're a one species among others, but we're a unique species. Uh, and 
capitalism because of the fact that it's driven by this absolutely relentless and unending uh, drive for profit um, and the constant expansion that goes with that creates a huge rift in the relationship between, between humans and, and the rest of nature. Uh, it's, you know, the, the most remarkable, uh, maybe frightening, immediate uh, symptom of that is climate change, um, you know, greenhouse gases that we've been spewing out that have created this, you know, very serious problem. But there are all sorts of other aspects of uh, what some people talk about as a global ecological crisis. Some talk about it as the, the beginning of a new era, which we can call the Anthropocene, whatever we, you know, whatever language we choose to refer to this, uh, there is clearly you know, a tremendously destructive relationship that humans have to the rest of nature. And this is not because of human nature. It's not because of technology or industry per se. Uh, it's because of the fact that we have a system of production that's uh, driven by competition to expand relentlessly through this drive for profit. Uh, it all rests, of course, on our you know human ability to work, which powers it all, but it's it's not under our control, right? We sell our abilities to work uh, in exchange for wages. It's it's alienated from us, and it it is under the control of capital, which dominates us. Uh, and in the way that that happens is very destructive. Yeah, we tried to trace these things. You know, historically, you do a good work of sort of walking us back in time to kind of look at some of the roots of these things. Um, not only as you try to debunk other ways to explain things, but uh, as a way to say, you know, this is a recent development in terms of this particular way of organizing things. Not that money hasn't been around for a very long time or markets and things of that nature, but but this is in itself an organizing structure. Now, one thing that I always get confused on is how these things get organized, you know, how we begin to be organized in this way, moving from uh, feudal societies forward, things of that nature, thinking about people with vast fortunes beginning to hold more influence on other people, people who uh, reap the benefit of some kind of invention. You know, when we learn the second law of thermodynamics, everything goes crazy and all of a sudden we're organized as capitalists. (laughs) Uh, I mean, capitalism you know, didn't always exist, and we need to make an important distinction between uh, markets and capitalism, because markets have been around in human societies from the beginning, uh, but there's a big difference between a society that has some markets, some trade, and a society that's market-regulated. Uh, and capitalism, I would argue, first developed in, in England, uh, and then spread from there uh, until it became the globally dominant way of organizing uh, the production of goods and services. And uh, so that is a, it's got a specific history. We could study it. There's debate about it, of course, and there's different ways to take the approach that I use in the book and to interpret history. Um, but I think the, the key thing is to understand that it, uh, capitalism's not in human nature. It's not like it was kind of always there latent. Some people think that, well, it's in human nature, and then as soon as uh, the barriers were taken down, suddenly human nature was able to flourish, and we, we got capitalism. I think that's far from the actual way it happened. Um, the capitalism was the unanticipated, unplanned outcome of class struggles in one particular part of the world that uh, then has had this incredible transformative effect mm-hmm. on, on the world. There is uh, the magic phrase, too, class struggle. So uh, class class struggle has always existed also, right? 
Well, class struggles existed as long as there have been class-divided societies. And so roughly 5,000 years probably since the first fully class-divided society developed in Mesopotamia. Um, Human societies, you know, human human species has been around longer than that. Um, But for much of that history, human beings uh, organized in different ways, foraging societies, some people call it hunter-gatherer societies, other other ways of organizing social life that didn't have this division between uh, those who toil and those who live off the labor of the majority at their at their center. Mm-hmm. But for the last 5,000 years or so, we've had class division at the heart of, of human society. And one of the things that I try to explain in the book is that that is very much interwoven with patriarchy, with oppressive ways of organizing gender relations. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, again, have not always existed, but have certainly been with us at least as long as we've had societies divided on class lines. It's time for a break. This is the English post-punk band The Pop Group with We Are All Prostitutes from 1979. When we return, we'll talk about pop ideas like the power of positive thinking and how they address superficially the symptoms of the disease that is capitalism. to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment of our show with David Camfield, author of We Can Do Better, Ideas for Changing Society, we try to clear the decks of pseudo-explanations for the conditions of our lives, such as the power of positive thinking, evolutionary psychology, and neoliberal market ideology. Well, 
yeah, I mean, certainly it's, it's not only men, but we, we can't separate out uh, we can't separate out patriarchy from capitalism. And one of the things I try to do in the book is ex- try to uh, suggest a way of understanding uh, our society as made up of uh, you know, interwoven social relationships that are really inextricably tied up with each other. Um, to think about living in a, a single system of interconnected relationships. So instead of thinking about separate systems like class and gender and race that somehow kind of converge or intersect together rather to think about you know one complex interconnected web that we're in um, and in the world today that's certainly organized by capitalism and it is really important um, but I think it's it's helpful to think about society in this interconnected way because it helps us get beyond some of the debates that people have on the left where people pit uh, you know class versus gender versus race um, and there, instead of trying to see how they're in fact all intimately interwoven with each other in this kind of a society and for example you know we need to have specific struggles that take on sexism and take on racism um, but there's very there are very limited uh, ways in which those struggles can advance if they don't actually confront mm-hmm. capitalism which puts profit uh, above human need. Mm-hmm. And this is where you, I think you stress the need for social theory. This is where you stress that you have to have some larger overriding idea of what you're doing within these smaller or more specific particular battles. They all have to sort of be working towards an understanding of of achieving a particular goal within that theory. Well, people know what's happening to them in their own lives, but why things are happening to them is not so clear, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and this is one of the things that makes capitalism more difficult to understand than this is forms of class-divided society that existed before capitalism. Uh, there was no doubt, for example, in, in feudal Europe, before the rise of capitalism, you know, the, the peasants uh, knew who was exploiting them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had to work a certain number of days unpaid on your lord's fields, if you had to turn over to the Lord at harvest time a certain proportion of what you produced, and you had to pay the church a tenth of everything, um, then that was pretty clear. Uh, now, when you know your workplace is closed and you lose your job uh, because it's you know the company that owns the company you work for is bought up by somebody else, right? I mean, this is uh, less immediate and harder to understand. Um, so I think it's really important that we have theory that can help people understand these broader forces that are shaping our everyday experiences. Now, you do a a good job, and you begin the book, really, with trying to say there are lots of ways to try to explain the world, and that there are a lot of trendy ways that seem to be happening right now. And and trendy almost makes them seem flighty or not important, but they have have really strong influence, it seems to me, right now. And and if you don't mind, let's, let's talk about a few of those other ways we might explain that kind of subvert conversations about class and capitalism and the ways in which the world is organized and try to, to argue other ways in which we see things going to going apart or other ways in which we might achieve personal success or other ways in which we might be responsible for the world and how we need to change it ourselves. All these kinds of things you kind of walk through pretty quickly at the beginning of the book to kind of clear the decks and say, these things don't have the explanatory power that they appear to have as they're sort of reported on in the media or published in journals, etc. So uh, let's walk through a few of those. One of the things I talk about is the influence of uh, uh, different forms of what you can call idealism. And by that, I don't mean having high ideals uh, and, and principles or, or hopes, but uh, phenomena that don't actually derive from 
matter and energy and space and time um, to treat ideas as if they exist independently from from human beings. So that can take the form of um, you know positive thinking. And you know the U.S. writer Barbara Ehrenreich has beautifully uh, taken that on in, in her book Bright Sided. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the idea that you can have anything uh, anything you want simply by focusing your mind on it. Um, and this is a particularly strong streak in U.S. culture, although yeah. it exists elsewhere too. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's really kind of magical thinking. No, it is. I, I, and I, I, it is important that you noted, uh, obviously, in the book Oprah. And I think it's probably one thing most people probably can at least say, "Yeah, I, under, I remember that." You know, the secret, the secret uh, that Oprah yeah. uh, promoted endlessly because you know it worked for Oprah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, that's not the only form of idealism, but that's a, a powerful uh, one that's there. You know, religion often plays this role where people uh, explain what happens to them um, because, of the uh, you know, they've, they've sinned, there's the vengeful God, uh, and so on. So um, this is a, a way that people for, you know, centuries have explained what goes on in, in society. But uh, whether it's the you know, the new age form or uh, conservative form of religion, I think it's equally bad at explaining how societies actually work. Um, of course, values and ideas are, are real things, but they're not forces that exist separately from us in the world. Yeah, they seem like they work really hard to keep us in our place more often than not, right? Uh, all of these ways of thinking are uh, very conservative. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About the Economy. And our guest is David Camfield, author of We Can Do Better, Ideas for Changing Society, a critique of social and economic explanations that evade the constitutive force of capitalism. Now, you also talk about evolutionary psychology. I guess this uh, would sort of work towards, uh, you know, behaviorism of a kind as well. Right. And that's, it's really out there in, uh, you know, studies that get reported often in very, uh, you know, narrow kind of shallow ways by the media. Um, but it's the latest version of the old uh, ideology of biological determinism mm-hmm. that uh, basically says society is organized the way it is because uh, of the way that we are as a species. Um, and whether you are talking about uh, 19th century uh, phrenology and people measuring the size of heads um, or coming up with uh, you know, theories about superior and inferior races that today we would, we would find absurd, uh, most of us, uh, or whether it's 21st century evolutionary biology you know, presented uh, in a much more sophisticated way, the underlying logic is the same um, that uh, you know, denies the way that humans are conscious, uh, creative makers of ourselves and our and our societies, uh, and you know, evolutionary psychology is just again, the, as I say, the latest, the newest version of an old story, uh, and it's been really you know, demolished by by critics. But you very rarely have those uh, alternative perspectives that make it into the mainstream media. Um, so. The, the book tries to summarize a little bit of that. Yeah, it's it's brief, but I tell you what, it's a strong one. Um, you know, it's one that we we combat or try to here on the program sometimes. Obviously, with schools and charters, uh, you know, the sort of uh, grit 
idea of getting getting uh, making your world a better one the whole martin seligman learned helplessness world of positive psychology all these things are are they sort of as you say grip the media and um because the media is of course a conservative venture also <laughs> in many ways these are the stories that we tell in order to say well it's not capitalism it's because you're that way mhm Exactly, and, and so evolutionary psychology is almost always, you know, very conservative in the way that it uh, defends the existing hierarchy and says that it's the result of evolutionary uh, like adaptation, and it, you know, it essentially looks at things in society like, you know, sexism, um, like income inequality, wealth inequality, and says this must be the the uh, you know adaptive outgrowth um, of some problem that confronted our ancestors in the Pleistocene era, and that this explains why things are the way they are today. Uh, so it does end up just ratifying the status quo. Mm-hmm. And it even extends to things like diet, right? Paleo diet is something like this as well. Oh, I hadn't thought of that connection. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about, you know, the the more that we try to think about what the paleo world is, it's a, it's as much a fanciful construction as anything else, right? And it's 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 sort of it's shoehorned back into these these ideas of what humans uh evolutionarily could not have changed from. You know, we don't have enough time to have have a different diet or a different belly or something like that. Right. Yeah, so it certainly it often underestimates the extent to which people really have changed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the last 10,000 years. And uh, the fact that we really don't know that much, um, you know, about those, about those Pleistocene conditions uh, and what, uh, you know, exactly what the evolutionary challenges that people confronted and, and so on. It's, those things are, sk- are skated over, uh, I think, by a lot of evolutionary psychology. Mm-hmm. Well, they are looking at one thing. I mean, again, we have narrow views that we promulgate, promote, that get us promotion, that kind of work within those capitalist hierarchies of how we get ahead in the system, right? We all play those parts, and those are structured by our economic system or our way of socially organizing. So they're as much a part of this problem within this this way of organizing, right? Right. And I mean, I think we can look at the uh, popularity of something like evolutionary psychology and ask, well, why would this particular way of explaining people and society be popular? Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's not because of the inherent uh, you know, intellectual genius of this, but rather I think the popularity has much more to do with the way that it ratifies the way things are, ratifies mm-hmm. the status quo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's time for another break, and a quick one. This is The Dills with Class War. Stay with us for more on capitalism and how we can do better with David Camfield on Interchange on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange. Our guest is David Canfield, author of We Can Do Better, Ideas for Changing Society. We begin with the way capitalism has subverted, for the sake of profit, our understanding of the looming existential threat of climate change. Right. I think it's a really important question because a lot of people are really concerned uh, about climate change. But uh, the question I heard to ask in the book is why is so little being done about it? Uh, and I think here you have to look at the way that uh, our energy system is actually organized, right? It's based on, for the most part, or to a large part, fossil fuels. Uh, and in order to change that, it would require a lot of social change um, that would have a negative effect on the companies uh, that are at the center of these industries. Um, and you know, Naomi Klein has written about this quite well in, in her book, um, uh, this changes everything. Because uh, if, if you were really going to make the conversion away from the transition away from fossil fuels, they would have to have uh, there's all sorts of different actions by, by states um, to ban pollution, to promote uh, alternative energy sources, and, and so on. And that's a real challenge to the ideology of neoliberalism, which has become so powerful in recent decades. Um, certainly doesn't want to see that kind of uh, public intervention. Uh, but then you also have to look at, you know, the amount of profit that's at stake for the firms that are uh, there in the, the energy sector. And there's a lot of governments that are dependent on you know, those states, or, or sorry, on those corporations, or they would suffer certainly if those, um, you know, firms uh, decided to mm-hmm. you know, exert their influence elsewhere and, and so on. So, um, you know, if you suddenly, if you, if you had firms refusing to invest because the state was trying to carry out a transition away from a fossil fuel-based energy system, um, that would cause all sorts of economic and political havoc. And so um, there's, it's it's not the, you know, if you, if you drill down into it, it's not the fact that we don't understand what's causing climate change. I mean, the science is, is quite clear. Um but the kind of changes in society that would be needed to really come to grips with it really involve confronting confronting the power of capital. Hmm. And I think that's the, the root problem. And so uh, environmentalists who think that uh, they can kind of rationally persuade uh, business into doing things that would actually uh, undermine profits, uh, you know, I think really need to, to think about how capitalism is connected. Well, it requires energy, requires resources, you know, and to, it's in itself, it's, its goal is to just keep, keep using those resources, right? You can't, you can't keep producing things if there's nothing to produce with. Right. I mean, and, and the, the, the terrible, you know, dilemma that we're confronted with is that we actually do have the, the technology to have a very low carbon emission uh, economy, right? We we actually have all sorts of technologies that could be used um, to generate uh, energy without the use of fossil fuels, uh, and the transition could be carried out if there was a political uh, will to to do it. Uh, so it's not that we don't have these technologies. The the problem is the the obstacles to actually putting them to putting them into use. Uh, and you can look back. I mean, the 1940s and World War II are a you know, terrible period in human history, um, but we can see that when you know, capitalist states like the U.S. decided that they had to rearm for war. Uh, they were able to carry out an enormous shift uh, relatively quickly um, because profits and, and the, the power of, of rulers were at stake. Uh, and 
moving along uh, with a lot of talk about emission reduction and so on, but very, very little real action as we continue to see the increased uh, greenhouse gas emissions mm-hmm. that are, are fueling the climate change crisis. So um, this has, you know, this kind of understanding of has real implications for, for climate justice organizing, for people concerned about climate change. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the state there. There is no capitalism without state intervention. The state is a prop or state is an, a, a co-partner, a co-conspirator in capitalism. You can't do one, you can't have one working without the other supporting it. Absolutely. And that's a good way of putting it. We need to think about the state is actually part of capitalism. Um, it's not somehow a force outside of it. Obviously, there's a difference between a, a, a corporation and, and the state. Uh, but states, as we know them today, are uh, a product of how capitalism has developed. Uh, you could think about it as the, you know, the coin on one side is the, the economic side of the coin, corporation and the political side. The other side is the state. Uh, and so there are all sorts of ways in which the states act to support corporations doing their thing, to support the uh, the accumulation of capital, if you like. Uh, and states are, are dependent on on that because you know if, if firms don't invest and the economy seizes up and unemployment rises, that causes all sorts of difficulties in terms of how this state can operate because it has to have tax revenue to fund itself. There's always the problem of social unrest when unemployment goes up. Um, so uh, here I think what, what the book uh, tries to argue is that we need to consider the state as you know, woven into the system. It's not a, a tool that can somehow be simply used against, against capitalism. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About the Economy. And our guest is David Camfield, author of We Can Do Better, Ideas for Changing Society, a critique of social and economic explanations that evade the constitutive force of capitalism. So let's actually talk, before we move into some uh, some of the ideas going forward, how we uh, even think about changing the uh, the air we breathe or the, the water we swim in that we call capitalism, um, there, there are ways in which the, the, the structure of organizing uh, sort of complicates all of these things we talk about. Now, a couple of the other things you talk about in the book, sexism, sex and politics, and racism, uh, have deep links to the sort of power of capitalism or that, that that's kind of how capitalism has has made use of these divisions in gender and and race uh, within those within sort of the overarching class divisions. So I think there there are specific forms of oppression that people experience because of the way that gender is organized in our society, um, because of the way that we have society organized by by race, um, and I don't think that we can dissolve those things into into class. They're, they're, they're distinct um, if you look at the specific forms of oppression that people experience. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they're not separate systems that exist outside of capitalism. These are you know, social relationships that exist in what I call a, a matrix of relationships um, that include, include class, so that we certainly have gender relationships, um, relationships of, of uh, racial oppression uh, and class relationships, uh, as well as other relationships like the relationship between um, the indigenous populations you know, you know who were here before Europeans arrived in north america and and the rest of society um, 
And so these are all interwoven with each other. And because they're specific forms of oppression, like you know, gender oppression, they will give rise to particular struggles against them, um, whether that's the struggle for reproductive freedom, right? And obviously this is a thing on the minds of a lot of people in the U.S. right now uh, in terms of the fate of Roe versus Wade, the question of abortion access, and, and so on, um, or the struggles of transgender people. Uh, so there are all sorts of struggles around gender uh, that are important. And then, of course, people in the U.S. obviously know uh, Black Lives Matter has really thrown up uh, again the importance of looking at racial oppression that African Americans experience, but also the, the racial oppression of, of other groups um, within the U.S. And those are all, you know, there are specific forms of oppression that generate particular struggles. But of course, groups of people who suffer oppression are also divided by class, uh, and so there's going to be a big difference between the way that uh, middle class um, women, for example, or women who belong to the to the ruling class in the U.S. Respond to sexism uh, as compared to the way that working class women experience and, and respond to sexism. So, uh, you know, Me Too, that whole Me Too movement, um, cultural movement, and, and the activism that's happened around that has been really important uh, in terms of challenging sexual violence. And we just saw very interestingly um, this week a number of small scale strikes um, taking place, uh, workers at McDonald's um, who are actually. You know, challenging the the sexism that they that they experience. It's really, uh, you know, kind of Me Too and and the fight for fifteen coming together, mm-hmm. uh, and some efforts by low wage workers to put a spotlight on the way that they you know very much experience that that sexism as well as the other forms of uh, injustice that they experience as, as low wage workers. Many of them workers of color. So we can see that these things are interwoven with each other, and uh, you know, a a woman top manager or CEO at McDonald's uh, might also experience sexual harassment or sexual assault, um, but the way that women from that, those class backgrounds are going to respond to that oppression is going to be very different, and what will be in their interest is not going to be the same as what's in the interest of most women. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a political example just from the news that was on my mind, but um, I hope that the book, with the way that it tries to look at these forms of oppression, uh, helps us to understand those those things in uh, in a better way. And again, I think it, what I'm hoping to do with the book is to get beyond the kind of uh, you know, hostile uh, you know, clashes or tensions that are often there uh, between people who are you know, really focusing on capitalism and class and people focusing on forms of oppression like racism and sexism. I'm trying to argue in the book that we actually need to put these things together. Um, we need to have a theory which is an integrated theory that helps us to understand all of these things and the way that they're interconnected so that we can have a strategy for responding, mm-hmm. which is, you know, t- takes that into account. So instead of pitting these things against each other, we need, to, we need a politics which takes seriously. There's an old union slogan, right? An injury to one is an injury to all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to try to think about what that means once we understand all the things that we can learn from movements against racism and um movements for, for gender liberation as well. Well, it's, uh, it is one of those things that's kind of hard when you start to break in 
break down all those those ways in which we struggle and those ways in which we are oppressed and the ways in which people respond to them you know the hardest thing you know, it's easy it's easy for you and I to say uh, or again to point to certain demons in some sense right these these capitalist oligarchical demons are obvious in some sense right they're billionaires they treat their workers terribly the fact that there are billionaire uh, employers and workers in and of them, themselves is the issue in many ways right this is part of the thing we're trying to say is there a social organization, a way to socially organize that first has to let people be on equal footing. It's very difficult to, to sort of move outside of oppressions that are constantly sort of operating within uh, a world in which you have to position yourself against other people. Uh, there's always an against an other in this particular system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. And it would be um, you know much simpler if somehow you you just simply had this stark counterposition between the billionaires you know the billionaire class as sanders talks about and and working people but of course you also have you know because you have society uh divided by by sexism because you have uh racism and, and the hierarchy that people are divided into to groups of different status and position in society um by what we call race um this complicates the, you know the struggles of, of working people, because of course there are all sorts of deep divides among working people um, that are caused by sexism, racism, and other forms of oppression. And so, uh, you know, if we want to actually be able to mobilize and organize working people to fight for change, we have to actually confront those forms of oppression that are that are obstacles. Um, they're not distractions that have been foisted on people. I mean, they're they're real, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the forms of male violence and racist violence. I mean, these are. Are, are not uh, not small things, mm-hmm. um, but we need to find a, a kind of political approach that understands these interconnections and uh, tries to build unity and, and equality, uh, and that tries to, I w- would say, both have broad mobilizations where we can unite all sorts of people um, around common demands, uh, and then also respects that you're going to have autonomous struggles by people who experience particular forms of oppression. Um, and we need both. You know, we need both movements for abortion rights and we need movements to fight for a $15 minimum wage, right? Uh, we need and, and strong unions and uh, other, other uh, things that advance the interests of all workers. And these are, in fact, we need you know, to both and, not an either or. It's time for our final break. This is The Subhumans with Businessman off of the 1985 album, Worlds Apart. Stay with us for more Interchange.
Welcome back to Interchange. In our final segment today, we try to find our way back into working class solidarity. Even though this particular organizing structure under capitalism's neoliberal regime has been decomposed and fractured, making solidarity more and more difficult. Yeah, but you talk uh, in the book, too, about how this has become more difficult because of the decomposition of the working class. This is where the, you know, the book tries to uh, give us a way of thinking about class that may be a little bit different than what some people you know, talk about on the left. That it's true, we have to look at how there are those of us who sell our ability to work to employers in exchange for a wage and don't have much management power. That's most of us. That's that's the working class. Also includes the people who aren't currently working for wages, but who you know who are in our in our households and, and so on. Um, but um, that's that's a pretty static way of understanding what class is. We also need to look at how uh, working classes sometimes um, are much more united, where there are much stronger ties of solidarity, where there's much more uh, common understanding and and both formal and informal organizations that bring people together, um, and other times when we're much more divided, when we're much more atomized. And I think certainly if you look at the U.S. and, and Canada today, we have working classes that are that are there, but of course the working classes, they're there, it's the majority of people, but we're very decomposed. Uh, we're, we're very fragmented. You know, union organizations are, are very weak. Those that, are, that do exist are often very bureaucratic, conservative, um, and there are not that many really strong community organizations of the working class either. Um, and so this has been different at different times in history, and there are new creative ways in which people are organizing, you know, sometimes using social media, using other other forms to try to build that kind of collectivity. Um, but we need to think about uh, class, I think, in, in classes in, in that way and not just as, as static uh, places that people are in in a structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it used to be classes change over time, and the, right. the big political questions is, you know, a crucial question is, can the working class recompose itself? Right? Mm-hmm. Can we find new ways for people you know, to organize across differences, across regions, and, and so on uh, in 21st century capitalism? You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is what we don't talk about when we talk about the economy, and our guest is David Camfield author of We Can Do Better, Ideas for Changing Society, a critique of social and economic explanations that evade the constitutive force of capitalism. The idea of individualism has, has a, is a double-edged sword, right, where you begin to uh, find freedom for the self uh, in, in a way that isn't collective. And, and we're struggling with an, uh, ways to define these things, the ways to understand what collectivity means, you know, what it means to be in support of each other versus getting and surviving yourself. You know, we've been sort of thrust against this idea that you, you've got to take care of you and um, in forgetting that in taking care of someone else. Also, we we are taking care of each other, and these are these are things we've sort of lost sight of in many ways. Yeah, I mean, and it goes back. It's interesting. I think we can bring this back to uh, the way that in a capitalist society, people get by. Like people have ways of surviving, which 
in a society like you know the U.S. today, it's it's often very much you know me and my family, or if I'm part of a family, kind of against the world, right? Um, people don't have a lot of social supports. Um, some some more than others. Sometimes there's extended kin networks, or uh, sometimes people have other supports. But often, especially because of the dismantling of you know the weakening of social programs mm-hmm. in the public sector, um, people are really thrown back onto their own resources, and so that can really you know that can lead to a very um, uh, kind of dog eat dog you know uh, kind mm-hmm. of competitive way um, where people. Uh, think that the only way that they can survive and support their kids and so on uh, is by trying to get ahead at the expense of other people, and you know that's that's a real challenge. We need to find other ways of showing people in practice that there are other ways that they better ways of dealing with the challenges that they that they confront. Um, that the, those kind of individual competitive ways aren't uh, aren't actually helping mm-hmm. um, but but in fact if we want to win large numbers of people over to something else we have to show we can't just argue right we actually <laughs> right. have to build kinds of workplace right. and community organizing right. that show people that there's a better way for them to to defend themselves and yeah. to fight for a better society some people will be open to the to the argument but we have to show it in practice right that's the one of the things that's the most difficult you know um, um, we did a show on AJ Musty not too long ago who had organized uh, I think it was Brookwood Labor College and you know in my in my dreams I was I was just like wow what a great thing a labor college and but there were like three only and then there was like something in Boston as well and and you think this is the heyday of, of militant labor organizing and and you wish that there was a way that we continued to do these kinds of things you know our our, our education system is, is geared to maintain the social order as is to learn those myths of, of founding and whatnot and, and not to, of course, rock any social boat. So we have to have this education on our own. We have to find ways to organize, to educate. Yes. And I, I'm really glad you brought up that example from history um, because we need, we need to recreate those kinds of things in, in our own times. You can think about, there's a, a concept that, um, Someone I know named Alan Sears, um, in his book called The Next New Left, talks about the idea of an infrastructure of dissent. Um, and I mentioned this briefly in, in my book, but the idea that there are both formal and informal organizations um, that allow people to learn how to think and organize together for, for change. Um, and this can take all sorts of different forms, but the infrastructure of dissent uh, has really, you know, suffered um, in the last number of decades in this part of the world. It's been weakened. Um, but there are still important uh, organizations. I mean, for, for example, just one that comes to mind, there's the uh, organization Labor Notes in the U.S., which has a big conference every couple of years that brings together uh, rank-and-file activists, um, people involved in unions and in other forms of, of worker organizing to share experiences, to share skills, and, and so on. It happened just uh, this, this is past spring, the most recent one. Um, that's, that's one example. And then there's, you know, uh, you know, various kinds of reading groups and um, all sorts of other kind of educational initiatives that people do have in, mm-hmm. in different places. And we need to find ways to uh, to strengthen mm-hmm. this. And it certainly has been interesting from from up, up in Canada to look at the you know there's a the real radicalization happening in the U.S. Certainly that uh, has been really clear since since Trump's election. That's all the kind of things that have led to the 
spectacular growth of the Democratic Socialists of America. And whatever the limitations of the DSA as an organization, it really means something that there are you know, tens of thousands of people who've signed up for this, mm-hmm. this organization uh, and who are in different you know, places uh, trying to create new forms of, of organizing and including this kind of, of education. Um, so I think... You know, we need to do do more of this and, <laughs> right. and to do it better. Well, uh, let me let me, David. Let me ask you, since we're we're running long here, and I don't want to keep you, I want you to have a chance to to talk a little bit about the close of the book. You you mentioned something you call, I think, what a self governing society. Do you want to give us that uh, this that idea to to close out with? Sure. So, I mean, the the book argues that social struggle is the key to making change, uh, using different examples uh, to try to make the point that, you know, there's very real limits on what uh, can be achieved by electing different people into office or by trying to carve out local solutions that don't challenge capitalism. But the book asks the question, can we do better than capitalism? Uh, And what it argues is that if we look at the enormous uh, advancements in social cooperation and technology that have been developed within capitalism, that there is the possibility of taking those um, things and uh, you know, putting them to different different uses, that we could, in fact, move towards a, a truly self-governing society where production was organized on the basis of need, not profit. Um, and this was you know, democratically controlled, where you had worker self-management in the workplace and democratic economic planning at the level of society as a whole. Um, so, that's the you know that's the alternative that I think is is possible. I mean it, that's a, a socialist democracy really, um, and I think that that's you know that is a historic possibility. The book doesn't argue that it's going to happen. It just says that this is is possible and it's it's worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I do try to argue in the book is that we we don't know what the future will look like, but it's nonetheless uh, I would argue you know something that we sh- we should fight for mm-hmm. um, because it is possible. It would be. You know, getting at the root causes of the, the incredible you know, social harm and, and ecological destruction that, that we face because of, of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, that it's worth fighting for, even if it's never ultimately achieved. You know, we don't know the future, but um, you know, everything we can do, for example, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions now will make climate change less catastrophic if we can you know, reduce emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, gains that people can make in terms of reforms within the existing system in terms of the kind of um, uh, support that we can give each other as we fight for a different kind of society. Um, I think those things are, are valuable for human beings regardless of the outcome. That's our show. We'll close with Capital, It Fails Us Now by Gang of Four from the B-side to the 1981 single To Hell With Poverty. Our thanks to David Canfield for naming the organizing structure that is generally only praised here in the industrialized West and always confused with democracy, capitalism, and we can do better. This is the title of Canfield's book, subtitled Ideas for Changing Society. It's brought out by Fernwood Publishing. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Surrounded by-
Just 